And now, God, we pray as we look to your word that you'd open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. I pray for help. I pray that my presence would be minimized and Christ would be made much of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know bestness is not a word, but it communicated, I hope. Um, Will you please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 15. We have just three more weeks in this book. This, I trust you felt it, this weighty book of Romans, and yet so rich, so faith-strengthening, so hope-giving. We've come through chapter 14. And we took a little extra time there because of the importance of that chapter for our life together as a church. You remember the question that we asked, right? What do we do when we're in the same fellowship, the same local body of believers with people who have different convictions than we do about certain secondary things? How are believers to live together alongside each other when we think differently about certain things. Now remember, we're not talking here about foundational, fundamental theological truths. We're not talking here about clear moral teaching from Scripture. It's these matters like eating and drinking and observing certain days that Paul mentions here, matters of culture, matters of custom, matters of preference, but still things that believers can have fairly strong opinions about. And for Paul... The important thing is not eliminating the differences. Now, instead, he gives very clear instruction, instruction from God, as to how we are to live with those differences. Not how to get rid of the differences so that you don't have to deal with them. Having, lived, having laid out his argument, his his rationale, that there, there really is freedom here, and that we shouldn't, on one hand, judge those who exercise more freedom than we do, and we shouldn't, on the other hand, look down on those who choose to abstain from things. We all live before God. We will all give an account of our lives to God. So, Paul says, purpose to welcome one another. Walk in love with one another. Purpose to not hold your positions, your freedom, so tightly that it harms someone else in the body. Be willing to forego your freedom. And don't just put up with each other. No. Welcome one another warmly and fully. The brothers and sisters in the church family that God has put us in. Remember verse 19 of chapter 14? So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, having laid out all of that, Paul now in chapter 15 proceeds to do what he does so regularly and so well. He brings us back to Jesus. In fact, he brings us powerfully back to Jesus. You can hear, again, in these verses the theme that has so dominated this book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life in 
Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified through the redemption that is in Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus. That is Paul's theme. That is Paul's boast. And he wants it to be our theme as well, our boast as well. So here in chapter 15, he draws our focus squarely back onto Jesus and he reminds us of two great truths. First, Jesus as our great Savior. And second, Jesus as our great example. So look with me at chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 13. This is God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and he became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Well, I just want us to look at each of these two truths this morning. Jesus as our great Savior. And Jesus as our great example. First, let's see how Paul reminds us and calls our attention again to Jesus as our great Savior. He does it in three very specific ways here. Three very specific references speaking of the saving work of Christ on our behalf. He rescues us. He gives us life. And friends, it is really important that we get this. Like deep inside of us, because without what Jesus did in saving us, we don't have a chance of following his example. So let's look. We see the first specific reference in verses 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is 
Without question, Paul's setting forth Jesus as an example. That's clear. We'll get to that in a moment. But as a foundation for that, Paul wants something in our minds and in our hearts about what Jesus did for us. You see, before we can ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? We've got to understand what did Jesus do. And to remind us of this, Paul chooses to get our attention on the substitutionary saving death of Jesus for us. Listen, if all he wanted to do was to provide an example of Jesus not pleasing himself but seeking to, good, to, to do good to others, well, I mean, he could have chosen any number of examples from the life of Jesus, like, like the time he washed his disciples' feet, for example. Or even if he wanted to point us to Christ dying on the cross as an example of serving others, he could have just made an explicit reference to Jesus giving his life for the sake of sinners, like he did back in chapter 5, remember this? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But instead, he takes this quote from Psalm 69, which is widely recognized and widely used in the New Testament as a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm speaking about Jesus. And he focuses on what exactly happened at the cross, what Jesus did to save us. This is Jesus, through the words of David, saying to God the Father, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. All of the insults of mankind aimed at God in all of our sin, all of our disregard, all of our dishonoring, all of that fell upon Christ. As Isaiah says, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. Now let's make sure we're getting this. Earlier in Romans, Paul spent a good amount of time showing that all men, all women are sinners. No exceptions. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of God's standard. And as a result, all men are under the perfectly just judgment of God. I mean, you can see that argument just built in the first three chapters of Romans. But then something very dramatic happens at the end of Romans 3. Remember this? Having laid out how all people have sinned and are under God's judgment, Paul talks about how out of his great mercy, God provided a way. Do you remember those great words? I mean, they should be etched on our minds. Romans 3.21, but now a righteousness from God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I mean, how is that possible? None righteous, no, not one, and now all of a sudden a righteousness from God is made available so that we might be righteous in Christ. How is that possible? Christ took all our sins on himself. All the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here is Jesus saying to God, all the reproaches, all the insults, all the sin against you, I took. And as a result, all God's judgment, his perfectly just judgment against sin, that also fell on Christ instead of on you. 
And as a result, he rescues, he redeems, he reconciles all who come to him and trust in him. And friends, that should put such hope and such confidence and such assurance in your heart in Jesus as your Savior. I I love what Paul does in verse 4. Right after quoting that little psalm, look there, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What Paul is saying there is that the Scripture, all of the Scripture, including that little bit I just quoted from Psalm 69, he is saying all of that is written to awaken and sustain your hope in Jesus as your Savior. That's, that's the first specific reference to Jesus as our great Savior. There's a second one in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you see what Paul's doing here? All of these ways of speaking about the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. Christ welcomed you. Again, Paul is setting forth Jesus as an example for us, but he's doing so much more than that. He's reminding us of what Jesus did for us. Jesus, through this act of taking on our sin and dying in our place, he brings us back into right relationship with God. He welcomes us. He is not, as the book of Hebrews says, ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. No, he welcomes us. Just turn back for a moment to chapter 5. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. You know what that means? Look back at the beginning of that chapter, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. We have peace with God. We've been welcomed in. We have obtained access into this place of grace. We've been welcomed in. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's welcomed us by means of what he did for us on the cross. We've been welcomed warmly, fully as brothers and sisters. This is Jesus saying to the Father, Look, my brothers, and my sisters are here. I tell you, that should put such hope and confidence and joy in your heart, in Jesus as your Savior. Now, the third reference to Jesus as our great Savior, it's there in verse 8. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a servant. He's setting forth Jesus as an example, but he's doing so much more. He's reminding us of our great Savior. I can't read those words 
without thinking of the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or I think about how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to be clung to, hanging on to his rights. No, he relinquished his rights. He emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant. Jesus became a servant. And that, that's not talking about him washing the feet of his disciples. That's talking about him laying down his life for the good of those he came to serve in, in that way. He humbled himself as a servant, and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, and he did that so that all who would trust in him, both Jews and Gentiles, would experience the faithfulness and the mercy of God. That should put such hope in your heart, such joy, such peace in Jesus as your Savior. Do you see what's going on here in Romans 15? Yes, Paul is setting forth Jesus as an example of focusing on others, but here, Paul is saying, here are three things that need to be in your heart before you can follow Jesus' example in your love for and caring for others. Here are things that need to be deep in our minds and in our hearts. In fact, just look for a moment down at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope not abound in discouragement not abound in fear not abound in anxiety not abound in bitterness in hope you know hope does not coexist well with those other things or maybe it would be better to say those things, discouragement, fear, anxiety, bitterness, they do not coexist well with hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And Paul is here in Romans 15 presenting truths for us to once again believe, to set our faith on Jesus Christ as our great Savior. What was it that John Newton said at one point? Two things I know. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. And may I just say this morning, if you are here and you, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't have this hope, if your life is characterized more by disappointment or fear or anxiety or a sense of futility, uh, we are so glad you're here. You are welcome here. And our hope is that you might come to know God here and experience his love for you, our hope is that you might come to know Jesus as your great Savior. And maybe you'll go home today and find yourself thinking, what is that all about? All right, that's what's behind and underneath this. But now, on the surface, there's another thing Paul is doing. Having put Jesus before us, he says, I want you to know Jesus is also our great example. And we'll be able to see this fairly easily and fairly briefly this morning. Look back up at verses 1 through 3. We who are strong 
have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself. Do you see how Paul is arguing? Christ is our example here. God calls us to prioritize caring for others over pleasing ourselves, over demanding our own rights and our freedom, to prioritize pleasing our brothers and sisters, seeking their good, building them up, and he points to Jesus as an example. You see the argument from verse 2 to verse 3, right? You do this for that's what Christ did. What's Paul's point? Follow Christ. Be like Christ. Be Christ-like. I mean, think about this. Who, who had more freedom than him to exercise his rights? And who had more power to not be inconvenienced by caring for others than any of us will ever have? had he been of a mind to just look to his own interests. And yet, who was more careful to bear with the weakness of others than Jesus? Who was more quick to consider others first? So Paul says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Be like Christ. So, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up instead of giving a brother or a sister a reason to stumble, instead of damaging their faith, instead of tearing them down. Remember chapter 14, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. We are instead to build one another up. I really love this phrase this biblical concept of building up. It means that what we do is add, we're adding to the growth of another person. We're bringing something in that wasn't there before. To encourage someone is to put courage there that wasn't there before. To strengthen someone is to put strength there that wasn't there before. So the example of Christ is one of laying down our rights and our own instinct to look out for our own good in order to care for and actively do good to someone else. So, let me just give you a little example. You have every right to park close if you came early. But if you're young and healthy and you got two strong legs, you're not elderly and you don't have several children to unpack, well then, park far so that others can park close, even if you come early. You have the right to exercise your freedom in a dozen different areas, but hold your freedom loosely and be ready to lay it aside if by so doing there's an opportunity to protect and care for and love your brother or sister. So what's the bottom line? Verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another in love. Don't let differences about secondary things 
get in the way of our unity in Christ and our practice of love. Now, there's one more footnote I want to add, and it comes out of what we see in verses 8 through 13. There, there was a particular challenge there in the church in Rome. And while we don't face the exact same kind of issue, it has implications for us. There in Rome, a big part of the problem, big part of the issue, was the differences in convictions, differences in opinions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians that made up that church. These differences of history and custom and culture. And Paul's word to them has been very clear. Welcome one another. But he does something more here in verses 8 through 13. He makes a point of reminding those believers there in Rome, all of them, that God's work through Christ is for all people, without distinction. The gospel is for all. Look again at verses 8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's a reference to Israel, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul proceeds to quote four passages from the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. And the word that links all of those together is the word Gentiles. And it's more than just interesting that Paul quotes from every section of the Old Testament. The law, the writings, and the prophets to show that this has always been God's purpose. The gospel, God's intention to save a multitude from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity. Jew and Gentile. God's faithfulness to Jews through Jesus Christ becoming a servant for them. God's faithfulness to Gentiles, his mercy to Gentiles through Jesus Christ becoming a servant for them. You see, God means there to be a beautiful ethnic diversity among his people. The, the, the solution there in Rome wasn't for the Jewish Christians to go to the first service and the Gentile Christians to go to the second service. They were to welcome one another so that, verse 6, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the degree that we have some ethnic diversity here at Crossway, I know it's not a huge degree. We're pretty white. Let us not think somehow that we are special. None of that. And we've got some ethnic diversity, and it's real. To the degree that we have it, it should be marked by open-hearted welcome. And we ought always to be wide open to welcome more of it. We should pray toward it, and we should move toward it, and we don't do that as some end in itself so that we can say, hey, look at us. No, we do it because it glorifies God. We welcome one another 
for the glory of God. Listen to how Paul just lovingly hammers this point. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Verse 9, in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Listen, God is glorified by the mutual love and kindness of his people despite their differences. He's glorified in that. So whether it's crossing the parking lot or crossing the lobby or crossing lines of comfort, let us welcome one another and let us, verse 2, each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now we might ask inside our heads, is it worthwhile to do this? Which at times will cost us. And the answer is, of course it is. The problem is not that we doubt the value or the rightness of this. The problem is that we get distracted and bogged down by our own stuff and it's not always easy to see the effects of our actions on other people and we can sometimes wonder is it making any difference listen we won't always see what's going on inside people's hearts we don't fully realize the part that we might be playing as we seek to build others up so we simply trust Christ and we follow Christ and we welcome one another into our fellowship and into our lives and into our hearts like Jesus did. And we seek to do good for one another like Jesus did, like Jesus does. And we trust that God is building his church. We have been Christian. We have been received by God in Christ. We've been welcomed by Christ as a matter of pure grace And now we get to extend that grace to one another, even with some differences in culture and custom and preference. And as we do, this body, this fellowship, will experience peace and joy, our hope firmly grounded in what Christ has done for all who believe, It is only as we fix our gaze on our great Savior, Jesus, and then seek to follow him as our great example that we will enjoy the harmony that God intends, the joy, the peace, the hope, all of these gifts from God to us by his Holy Spirit. So, Crossway, may that be us. May that be our experience here in in this fellowship of believers today and this week and for the rest of this year and on into 2020 and for all the years that God gives us as a church for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray once again for your help. We've heard your word. We recognize that not everything that you, get, that you intend to get done gets done here in this 40 minutes. Um, you've planted your word in us. We need to process. We need to think. We need to pray. We need to obey. We need to 
um, believe and then work out the obedience that comes from faith. And so, God, I pray for your help. Help us to be Christ followers. Help us to be Christians. We want to do this, Lord, because um, it's good, it's right, it's magnifying to Christ. We want to do it because it brings glory to you, and that's our aim. But thank you for being a good God who also gives us joy and peace and hope. So, Lord, we pray for these things, not, not just for your glory, although that is sufficient. We pray it because you're a good God. We pray it for our good as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.